Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There was a long period when I, you know, when I remembered that I had been molested by my dad, um, I went through a long time where I didn't talk to him. I didn't see him, but I would talk to him on the phone and I never told him why I didn't see him for a long time, for seven years. I didn't tell him why I wouldn't see him. I just made up excuses. And finally I told him that I was afraid of him. Anyway, after that conversation, I did go and see him and realize that I could be safe and see him. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. 
Hey beautiful soul, it's so great to have you here each week. I really appreciate you and I'm so excited that you're enjoying listening to these stories as much as I'm enjoying creating these episodes for you each week. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this episode and send it across to someone that might get something really positive and amazing out of hearing it because I really want to spread these stories far and wide. You know, when a brand new baby's born, there is so much potential for awesomeness. When we're holding that tiny newborn in our arms, how many parents have said to that tiny little soul, oh my gosh, I love you so much. But by the time you get to 13, Gosh, you are going to be so lonely. Nobody, nobody says that because when a child is born, there is so much love, so much expectation for amazingness, for giving this child everything, including everything we felt we didn't get ourselves. But then by the time the child gets to high school, just a few years later, there can be this abandonment, this inability for understanding or connection or guidance. And all of a sudden, a child's life is filled with an all-encompassing loneliness, a complete abandonment. This week's story is called Family Secrets and Healing. And living in a family with secrets is absolutely a fast track hurtling a child towards disconnect and loneliness but as usual there is a huge amount of wisdom and courage and healing in this episode so please join me now as everything in this episode deserves to be heard thank you so much for joining me let's start off with just finding out how would you describe yourself as a kid i think i was quiet in some ways and that I loved to read. I loved to make art from the time I was a child. I liked to play with my sisters, so we spent a lot of time together doing that. But I was also kind of nervous and not confident in certain ways and approaching people I didn't know was kind of daunting to me as a kid, which is quite different now. So I think as I am now in some ways, I was kind of an introvert and extrovert mixture. Yeah. That's probably quite a nice mixture, I think, getting a little bit of both. I don't think I recognized my introvert part as an adult until not that many years ago. I think I thought I was an extrovert and that I should be, and I didn't actually give myself space that I need. But I finally realized that I can, that it is a combination that exists within me and that I need kind of both, both parts of that, you know. Yeah, I get that. I think I've got a little bit of that myself. So tell me about your, your dad from when you were a small child. What do you remember of him as a person? So my dad was passionate and dramatic, and there was a certain amount of histrionics going on in my family. There was a kind of unpredictability. But my dad, he loved to read, both my parents, and loved to learn, and he loves boats. I don't think my dad was very comfortable in his body as a person, but when he was on a boat, he was happy. That was really in the water. That's like his happy place. I wrote a piece in my undergraduate program about him and that relationship he had where he could let go somehow there. 
And I like to do projects with my dad. In some ways, I was like the boy. I was the one standing there with the nails in my mouth while he was like rebuilding something. But there was a lot of drama and there was a lot of stuff from my dad's childhood that he hadn't dealt with. And so there was a lot of reactivity in certain situations. And I just don't think he knew how to do it any differently. But it created a lot of tension and challenges in my parents' marriage. And so that was also part of my upbringing. Yeah. So you think that a lot of his behaviors came from his own childhood? I definitely do. There was a long period when I, you know, when I remembered that I had been molested by my dad. Um, I went through a long time where I didn't talk to him. I didn't see him, but I would talk to him on the phone and I never told him why I didn't see him for a long time, for seven years. I didn't tell him why I wouldn't see him. I just made up excuses. And finally I told him that I was afraid of him. And um, anyway, after that conversation, I did go and see him and realize that I could be safe and see him. And I realized that the love that we share was more important to me than what had happened that I could forgive him in some way because I knew that the choices that he made came out of his own suffering. I mean, and I was doing a little bit of Buddhist practice then and meditation, and I'm no expert on Buddhism whatsoever. But I remember realizing that those decisions he made came out of his own pain and somehow then I could reconnect to him because that was just what he was able to do. Wow. And it was, you know, bad choices, really bad. But in the sense of being able to see where it came from, that helped me reconnect to him. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? How confusing was that, though, as a small child? Because we can look back, can't we, and it all fits, but as a small child, is it just confusion? Is it, what are the feelings in that situation? It was totally, I guess in my childhood, it was just confusion. And um, when I was in my, like, when I was in my early 20s, or maybe 19 or 20, I read this book by Alice Miller. It's a famous book about trauma and recovery. And she talks about kids having to split because they either, they either have to trust in their parents or trust in themselves. And that in childhood, it's too painful to not trust in the person who's taking care of you. So that we kind of split within ourselves and we trust the parent. So I feel like I tried to rely on my parents, even though they were not reliable and my dad, it was just a lot of chaos. And I loved my dad and I felt super connected to him, but I also had a totally, like his relationship with me, he shared things that were totally inappropriate about his marriage to my mom. There was a lot of drama and a lot of yelling in the middle of the night and I felt scared a lot. And, and I liked to do things with him, but there was also just a lot of disappointment and sorrow because he just couldn't show up in so many ways. So it was very, very confusing in my house. You know, and I relied on him in some ways because spiritually at a soul level, I think we were connected and I relied on my mother more pragmatically, but emotionally she was not really available at that time. But I think my dad just never really got over the trauma of his childhood and he was kind of living that out a lot of yeah. the time. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I think especially for men that were born probably the era when your dad would have been born, when there was trauma, nobody was going off to get counselling or so they just had to figure out how to survive, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, this is a little sad, but um, I've definitely described my family. It was like Darwinian, like everybody was just trying to survive and yes. the sort of survival of the fittest and nobody was all that fit. Um, so it was a difficult, yeah, it was a difficult environment. And, you know, it isn't that my parents didn't, also share beauty with us about art and books and passion and education and 
there was some magic with my dad. Like he would tell stories, which I love, make up these stories for us. And um, I loved all that. And he taught me to love, I think it's why I still love the radio and NPR, which is our public radio here, um, National Public Radio. He loved the radio from his childhood where he would sit around and listen to dramas on the radio, you know, before that was on television. And, you know, he instilled a lot of that in me, that passion. And he was always drawing pictures of boats and houses that he wanted to build. And um, so that creativity was there. But I think his sort of frustration and his pain was just always in the space. And I'm an empath. So I think also that I, I took that on, not knowing that's what I was doing as a kid, you know? Yes. It is very confusing, isn't it? Because you've got such a, one side, there's such an amazing dad. And then there's obviously this other side, which would be very hard to deal with. And how does your mum, how did your mum deal with it at that time? What was your relationship like with her when you were a small child? You know, when I'm really, when I was really little, I can't remember if my mom was really affectionate, but certainly by the time I was old enough to know, she wasn't very affectionate. She was pretty remote, super reliable about the practical stuff, getting us places, taking us where we needed to go, making sure there was food on the table. But, and my mom was very much used to living within her means. And my dad was always living emotionally and pragmatically kind of beyond his means. So she was always kind of keeping that in check. But And my mom was also super smart. I mean, is super smart and big reader and, you know, interested in ideas. But emotionally, I think her way of dealing with the marriage was just to shut down. So she was just really not available for comfort or even a certain kind of love. And when I was in junior high or maybe I was at the end of elementary school, I actually had an interaction. I hate saying this now because my mother and I have such a loving relationship now. But when I was about 12 and things were so bad with her and my dad, She even once said to me, point blank, I cannot love you the way you want me to. And for a 12-year-old, that was pretty Um, devastating. Yeah, that was like, now I'm okay. She laid it on the table. But at the time, it was like I could barely manage that. Oh, that's so much to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as we both got older, I mean, we both did a lot of psychological work and therapeutic work. And since my 30s, and I'm in my 50s, you know, we are very, very close and she's much more available and she's just done so much work. But I think her way of coping with my dad being so overwhelming was just to withdraw. And she was already kind of a quiet person. She just, just, that's how she, and she just stayed outside the home a lot. She worked, she had a job that she loved and she worked a ton, another, another way to cope. So do you think that she was like that before she was married to your dad? Or do you think it was from the marriage that she became so withdrawn? Or was it something to do with her own childhood? Do you know much of that? I think in some ways, my, my mom was trained to be quiet and assimilate as a Jewish woman after the Holocaust. The main goal was not to be visible. I mean, it was just to fit right in and not be identifiable in any way that stood out. And so I think the assimilation training came from her parents, reasonably so. And I think her parents were just also good, hardworking, grounded people. They ran a little business by themselves and worked six days a week, you know, 52 weeks a year. And so there was a kind of grounded, I mean, those, those were the grandparents I hung out with, not my dad's parents who were in a different world, but you know, and I played cards with them and I, you know, slept over at their house and stuff. So I think my mom was in some ways, There was a limit, you know, she grew up in that era where you become a teacher or a nurse. She became a teacher, which she loved. But I do think there was a, there was no, you did not talk about, they didn't talk about emotions in her family, I don't think. And, you know, she knew she was loved, but people didn't go around saying, I love you. 
Man, my mom did say I love you when I was growing up. My dad said it more. I mean, my dad was very effusive, but also over the top, like that unboundary thing. But I think, yeah, my mom just, I, so I think she brought some of that, but then my dad's kind of insanity just made everything way more exaggerated with my mom. It's so strange to talk about this because even though I've thought about this so many times and done so much therapeutic work, it's hard because I feel scared of oversimplifying them or making it sound all bad or yes. them in some way. I 100% understand because there's so much, it's so complex. Families are so complex. The relationships are so complex and we, we feel a lot of love and connection and yet we have a whole bunch of other emotions that are completely the opposite to that. It's, it's such a difficult thing to talk about because I think there's a, a level of guilt talking about family members. And I guess that's why we don't go around sharing all this stuff with most people. We could go our whole lives without talking to anybody about a lot of these things. So I think, I think it's just something that we keep to ourselves a lot of the time. But I think by sharing it, it can make everybody else understand that their families maybe weren't as crazy as they thought because it's happening to a lot of people. Yeah, or that just that even if it's crazy that you're not the only one in that environment. Because I think yes. in high school, I never talked about what was going on in my house no. ever. And in the beginning of college, I didn't either. And only I left college after a year. And that's when I met people where I started to realize that other people maybe had had similar experiences and I could start to talk about it. Yes. And that was so revolutionary for me because I felt so ashamed before, like, nobody's dealing with this and my dad was having an affair for a really long time and which I knew from the time I was 11 that's also kind of inappropriate on so many levels that I knew that do you mean that you knew and your mom didn't know is that what you I mean? think my mom did know and she had just decided to be in denial about it and maybe it was even relieving her in some ways of having to deal with my dad but when I was 11 I mean I realized that that was going on and I had some kind of argument with my dad and I said like are you having an affair Wow. <laughs> wow. With this person that I knew. Yes. And because inappropriately, of course, he had introduced us to her. And yes, he told me. And then he told me why. So oh, gosh, wow. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot of information for an 11 year old. Yeah. And so all those years that I was in high school, I mean, I just didn't no, everybody's household wasn't as um, over the top, but I didn't know that lots of people's parents, there were affairs going on probably in a certain number of households. I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, I had no idea and I just felt like I could not speak of that. Like it was so, I just would say my parents are having a hard time, but I, you know, I didn't say it's crazy at my house, which it was affair or no. And I certainly didn't say my dad was having an affair. Yeah. That seemed beyond. Yes. And I think sometimes when we're young as well, whatever's happening at our home is kind of normal to a degree. Like you, you don't sort of realise how what's happening is that different. Maybe it's happening in everyone's house. You know, we, it's just kind of our normal, isn't it, when we're growing up in a family? Yeah. I mean, I knew there was something wrong, but you're right. I mean, I didn't, and I liked being in other people's houses because it always seemed calmer. But yeah, I'm sure I couldn't like distinguish the depth of everything that was happening. I will say my aunt, who's 90, almost 94 now, she was a stalwart of my childhood and she knew 
not about the molestation part, but she knew everything about my dad's crazy behavior and she knew about the affair and she was a person I could talk to about some things. And she did take my dad to task and confront him about a lot of stuff, which didn't change what he did, but she was one of the only people who could confront him. She kind of kept me alive in some ways in my childhood, like at a physical level, but also like at a spirit level. That was good that there was one person that could do that. It was really good. And it must have been, it must have been a great feeling to know that there was, even though that person didn't have all the power they had, there was a degree there of power because I suppose a lot of these things, it's just about feeling very powerless in our lives, isn't it? And nobody's seeing it. Nobody's understanding what's happening. And yeah. just knowing that maybe one person is part of that, I guess. Yeah, it did help. I mean, I felt pretty unmoored. In high school, I left home and I, I didn't, I almost moved in with her. I didn't, I stayed with her while I made the decision about where to live, but I didn't end up living with her. But just knowing that was an option, you know, knowing I could stay with her. And I did go sleep at her house and hang out with her, you know, when I was growing up. And she was pretty tough, but she was steady. Yeah, she made no bones about stuff. <laughs> right. So just going back to, I know that you spent a little, you left the US and you went across to the UK for a little while as a small child, didn't you, with your family? Oh, yeah, when I was super young, yeah. Yeah. So what, what, do you remember anything of that time? Was that a, a, a happier time for your family? Um, well, I was so young. I mean, I was like in nursery school. I don't think it was great for my mom. I think she was a little lonely there, but I don't have like a bad memory of it. I mean, we were Jews in London and it was pretty anti-Semitic there. So I think my mother was experiencing that, but I didn't know that. I mean, we couldn't go to certain schools because we were Jewish. Right. But I went to nursery school there for a while. And I don't know if it's why I've always been an Anglophile, but I've always loved England. And I've always loved so many things about that place, the atmosphere and the way of speaking. And I think it's a much more elegant way of using the English language than American English. And I was always reading books about English girls. So I don't know, something about that, I think, stayed with me. Yeah, just those little experiences that can, can change us, can't they? Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you were a little older, you went to quite a progressive school. Can you tell us a bit about that? My parents, um, I had been going to Montessori school, my sisters and I, and when we reached primary school or even the end of kindergarten, my mother didn't want to keep sending us to Montessori. My mother was very low key, but she was super passionate about education and alternative education became like a passion. And then they heard that this school was starting and um, creativity was seen as a central way that academic learning can be enhanced. And my mother worked there first as an administrator and then she taught there and she worked there for 30 years and she totally loved it. And it was a very small school where, you know, the classes, my sixth grade class had 12 kids in it and we called our teachers by their first name. And we sat on the floor of these classrooms or at these group tables and you could learn at your own pace. And so if one was 10 years old and doing math from some other more advanced or was behind, you know, that would get tended. But there was a huge art center. The school was in two buildings over the period that I went there, which was from five till I was 12. And at that time it ended at age 12. There was a huge art center in each building. There were art times of day for art, but the art rooms were big and beautiful and they had areas to make pottery and paint glass and make collages. And there were like hundreds of boxes of things you could put on the collage and there was a weaving loom eventually and you could, we made books and, and you could go there for your class. I mean, this is a lot of detail, but I loved at the school. Um, 
but there was a like a tree, little tree with like painter's hats on it. And anytime during the day that you had a free period, if there was a painter's hat available, then there was room in the art center and you could just go in there and work. Oh, how lovely. That's gorgeous. Yeah. And in the original school, the art teacher, I guess she did this in the second school too. She would play, there was classical music playing. And she had these two birds, these birds that flew around the space. It was very magical. And I mean, I made so many different things in that setting. She was kind of tough to the art teacher, but I experienced a million different things in that environment that were important to me. And I learned to read there and I loved to read. And so I could go and just like read and read and read and advance as fast as I wanted. And you know, had friends there and played outside and, you know, it was a good place. I mean, it lacked a little bit in the sciences in those early days, but it was, a, it was a good place. Yeah. Sounds amazing. It sounds like a, it sounds like the perfect place where every child should go to school because yeah. you've got all of that creativity and it sounds as if you got creativity from both your parents as well. So they were both creative and then you got this creative school so it sounds like a beautiful place to, to learn. Till what age did you go to that school? I went there till I was 12 and later it became like a school that went through eighth grade. But then I, my parents without, I mean, there was nothing, there was a private school that they had sent my sisters to for junior high, but it was, it was too expensive to send me there. I mean, at that point they were pulling us out of that situation. So I went straight into this extremely mainstream, pretty awful public junior middle school. And that was a real shock to the system. And they, they kind of didn't remember to tell me how different it would be. Right. So I, no preparation. So I was extremely startled on a social and emotional level. And I was ahead, way ahead academically. But I was like in no way prepared for that kind of, it was pretty, you know, like, like shark infested waters. It wasn't an easy place to switch to. Wow. Um, so that what was a big, big change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've, you've left your beautiful creative school and you've gone to this not so great school. So what's happening at home at this time? I think things were just getting worse and worse with my parents. I mean, that was around the age where I started to know that my dad was with this other woman and my mom was kind of withdrawing more into her work world or, you know, throwing herself into work and avoiding the home life. I did have a couple of super close friends that were my best friends and I slept at their houses a lot. I mean, I slept at my house too, but I, they came over, but I definitely spent a lot of time with them and I was becoming more and more, you know, I was quite ahead when I got into that school. So my grades were very high and I didn't have to make, I mean, I worked hard. I was studious, but I didn't have to make that much effort to do well, but I started to become a perfectionist about my grades and, extremely neurotic and even when I had like the highest grade on exam before the exam I'd be like oh, am I gonna be okay and what happens if I get a B and and it was I really think it was a way of trying to control something that I couldn't yeah. really control anything and again my parents weren't either attentive enough or very good at dissuading me from that neuroses my mom did once say to me I wish you'd get like a B or a C and realize like everything would be okay but this is where I wanted to say this thing that I've thought about a lot over the course of my life. My parents used to say to me, just do your best. And I think they thought that was freeing. And maybe in some households where things were normal or healthy, that would have been. But I didn't know what that meant. And so I was always trying to reach for something. I didn't know what best was. And it actually became like this ever receding horizon for me. And when something was measurable, like an A plus, then I knew. But I've thought a lot over the course of my life for so many reasons that I didn't, 
that I haven't trusted myself and how hard it was for me to finally like understand like an internal barometer. Like, what does that mean? Because again, I think my parents said it to create relief, but it did not create relief for me. Yes. And I think sometimes those things are said as a sentence and we're supposed to understand the meaning. And as a kid, nobody really explains what it means. What does doing your best mean? For you, it was, I I have to keep striving to do better than last time. And, and it becomes like, sort of like a a never ending race to outdo yourself. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The things that parents say that are quite well-meaning often can have a totally different effect on us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one really combined with everything else, there was something that haunted me about that because I, I mean, I grew up in a house where my perception wasn't upheld. There was so much that was denied. And so I think the combination of like, do your best and then the denial of actual physical reality, what was occurring in my family, the fact of no safety and feeling unprotected and my mom just not really helping us in that way. I mean, which she's reflected on since then, but at the time. And my dad, a lot of crazy things happened. And then my dad would afterwards be like, I don't understand why you don't trust me. I'll protect you. But right after something like really crazy had happened. One time when they were supposedly breaking up, my father's girlfriend came and tried to break into our house. And um, my sister and I were there and she was like breaking the glass around the front door and he had these little window panes. And my dad was in his office at the back of our house and did not come out and help us. That night, we called our friends and crept out onto the street in the dark and went up to the top of our street and had our friends come pick us up and take us to their houses. We didn't tell them what was happening. And then we decided that we would spend the rest of the summer with my mom because my parents had separated at that point for a while. Then the next day, my dad, we called the police that she was there and all this stuff. And, and the next day, my dad, like completely as if he couldn't even fathom what was happening, said, I don't know why you won't stay with me. I'll protect you. That kind of reality disjuncture, like it's taken me decades to trust that what I see is what is happening and that what I perceive is, I, I mean, I've written about this. I've made performance art about this. So I think that was just such a mind fuck. And so I think it's been a long road to recover from that. And I'm extremely sensitive still in my current relationship to when I think things are being denied. I mean, it's very, very triggering for me. Absolutely. Yes, that's really hard. That's really hard. So you had you two sisters also throughout this journey. I mean, as young kids, we, we were, we had our challenges, but we were also very connected and kind of as, three girls will do, you know, two at a time sometimes were close and the other one was kind of on the outs. So, but I think in junior high, people started to forge their own lives more and make their own friends more. So we, you know, we separated a little more and, and the age difference became more pronounced. Like when one person's 15 and one person's 12, it's a different stage developmentally. And then my parents, I think kind of this any semblance of like family meals because things were getting worse and worse between my parents. So I think that any of those structures started to go by the wayside more. So we kind of fended for ourselves a little bit more in a different way. And I think that's when I did spend more time at my friends' houses. And, but you know, my sisters and I still talked and confided in each other, but we also, you know, fought and argued. And I think, again, everybody was sort of just trying to make it, starting to plot, like, how we would leave home. And I mean, my sister started to look ahead to college, you know, in high school. And one left one year, and then the next one left the next year. And that's when the following year, I realized like, I can't stay here. Like it's out of control. I can't be here. And that's when I started to consider 
leaving home, even though I was a junior in high school. And I asked my parents to send me to boarding school and they just said, we can't, you know, we can't afford that. So I just decided that I was going to figure out something else. My friend had moved away and always kind of joked, if things get really bad, you can live with us. At the end of my first semester of my junior year, I went and stayed with my aunt and I said, I have to get out of here. I can't live here anymore. So I need to do something. And she said, well, you can live here or we can, you know, what are the other options? And so I called up that friend and said, they had no idea what was going on in my family and said, can I come and live with you? And I thought it would take them days to decide. And like three hours later, they called and said, you can come live with us. They had no idea what they were getting into. I agonized and agonized about living with my aunt, which would give me proximity to my family. And that was sort of the draw and the not draw, you know, the opposite. Or I could go far away and live with this family that I didn't really know very well. And in the end, I left in the middle of my junior year on the January 1st, I just got on a plane. And when I told my parents that I was going to maybe leave, they were like so disconnected that they said, okay, whatever you need to do. That's what they said. Oh my gosh. Wow. And, and then when I said I was actually leaving, all hell broke loose, like major meltdown, my dad was like losing his mind and saying I couldn't go. And my sisters were home from college for the Christmas break. And they said, you have to let her go. She has to get out of here. You have to let her go. And I don't know, somehow everybody calmed down. And on January 1st, I, I did. I, I lived with this family for the rest of my junior year of high school. And then I applied to college during my junior year. I just wanted to move on. And I got into college early and I started college instead of going to my senior year of high school, which I think was a benefit of, it was a survival technique, but I think developmentally in some ways it was appropriate and in some ways I was so socially not ready, but that's what I did. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Were you the wrong age for that? Is that what you're saying? Were you too well, young for, for college yeah, at that point? Like normally a person would stay in high school for, at, that, at that era for four years, freshman, yes. sophomore, junior, senior. So I didn't do my senior year and my birthday's in September. So when I arrived at college, I, I was 16 and I turned 17 my first semester. And um, I had skipped that whole year of social and academic development. I was smart, but I was so overcome my first year by everything that I had left behind. And emotionally, I just, I was, you know, I had wisdom, but I didn't have just the day-to-day -day experience that my peers had. And yes. so... You know, it was, it was difficult, but it was my way of getting out. That whole part of your life just sounds overwhelming. 
that you you felt so lonely and lost in your own home and that's that's one thing that that I find so hard to understand is how how we can feel so lonely with the the family who's supposed to be the closest people the people that are supposed to love us the most and so many people don't feel connected and then you've flown and you flew all the way over to stay with a family that you didn't know it's just it's just overwhelming but you must have had there must be an inner strength for you to have allowed yourself to do that yeah i think so i mean i think i was afraid and i think i was avoiding some things by leaving high school early i just found it uncomfortable and i wanted to get out and i think in some ways that was appropriate because i wasn't i was like such a deep thinker from childhood and I wanted to know why things happened and what we're doing here. And I was thinking about God and I was like a little kid. I was asking my parents like, what are we doing here? And they like did not know what to do with me. But I think, and in some ways, so that seeking part of myself, I think that made sense for me to go to college early. But I also think that I could have grown up and felt safer among my peers and started to kind of establish myself more within myself so I think it was the beginning of a long trend of, first of all, agonizing over big decisions, because when I was trying to decide whether to leave home and then deciding to go to college early, but also of um, being willing to deal with certain kinds of discomfort, like, like that could have helped me, like staying in high school might have had some benefits. But I did, I mean, this all sounds so sad and pathetic when I say it in this context, but I also feel like, I'm a pretty zesty person and I love life and I love people and I have really good friends and, you know, I just feel like my life has so much richness in it and, and something in that in me was alive already that way then. Like some part of who I am now was already alive and also self-preserving. And, you know, wanted to be here, even though I didn't know how to sort out what was happening, knew that, you know, there's something good about this life. I think it was inherent in me and in some ways I think I knew that more than my parents so my passion and my questions were kind of like disconcerting to them when you left home and you were living with this other family did you have any contact with your parents how much did you have to do with them yeah I guess we talked and visited I don't really remember and I found out when I stayed with this family, I mean, I can laugh about this now, but I was pretty lonely when I got there, but I made some really good friends. And that school that I went to was so much better than the school I had been going to. The school was much more contemporary in its thought and much, it had a lot more money. There was no question. It was a public school. They had way more resources and it just didn't have the tensions and the, it was just, it was a much better school. So in that way, it was great for me. And there was more freedom and there was more trust of the students, you know, as independent beings. So I guess I talked to my parents and, you know, they made some kind of financial contribution to this family. But the thing I figured out was that this family was just almost as dysfunctional as mine. They were just really quiet about it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that I realized that even when I was living there. But the one thing was the girl that I lived with that I had been friends with in Connecticut. We were friends. So there was that built in friendship with that girl. I mean, I did feel lonely. Like when I remember the beginning, like sleeping in that house at night, I felt lonely, but, and her parents had no idea the trauma I was coming from. So I also think they were kind of blindsided. I mean, they didn't know what was happening. Right. I mean, in a way they weren't even blindsided because they just had no idea about my internal life, like what had happened. 
but but I did live there and I did apply to college. And I remember the mom helped me do my early application for college and stayed up with me till one in the morning, typing up that essay and, you know, getting that all handled. And, and there was just, it was more stable. I mean, even just the fact that they were quiet about their issues. I mean, it was probably also denial, but it was quiet. Yes. And you probably, you had your friends, so you probably were able to support each other in, in that environment as well. It's, yeah. it's good. It's much easier when you've got, one strong ally in a situation as opposed to a, a family where everybody's just trying to survive and nobody's really supporting. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I made some really good friends and, you know, spent lots of time with them. And I mean, again, nobody knew what was really going on, but yeah, I mean, those girls that I met then, I mean, some of them I'm still friends with, you know, and it's 40 years later. So. Yes. That's lovely. And that, that's when I really started to kind of make a life here. And I met these women, um, who basically I feel like they raised me, you know, they, they helped me grow up, you know, I'm still friends with them and it's been really good friends with them and it's been, you know, 35 years. So that became more of a family. And that's when I started to talk about my dad and say things like, you know, my dad was kind of this weird guy and he's kind of crazy and people, most people would say, what do you mean? And I couldn't really explain. And then one woman I met, I said, you know, my dad was kind of crazy and like, and I talked about that mind messing thing. And she was like, oh, my God, I know exactly what you mean. And there was this recognition. She was like the first person I ever met where we understood each other inherently. Yes. And um, then we met another woman like that. And we finally decided we would have a little group called Women with Fathers Like Ours. And if you know what that means, you're in. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah. Because it was like this reality check. First of all, I liked these women and I enjoyed them. But there was this sense of understanding that we could explain or not explain, but there was an inherent understanding of that reality, disjointed reality that we grew up in. How amazing to have found those people. Yeah, that was important. That was starting to be stabilizing in some way. Not that all kinds of wild stuff didn't still go on. And, you know, I'm still recovering in some ways. At 50, I just turned 55 last week. And, I, you know, I feel like there's still an outcome in my day-to-day life from some of that stuff. But I also feel like I have a good, passionate, lovely life and um, longtime friends, which is just so important. And other family members that I've grown closer to over the years, like extended family. So that is also important to me. Absolutely. Um, I think you don't need to be born into your family if you can find an amazing one along the way. It's just as good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess looking back then because your parents did they split up at some point they were together for a long time and miserable weren't they yeah I mean they waited until we were when I went to college when I left home they separated got back together and then separated and finally got divorced when I was in high school I remember you know my sisters and I cried and rang our hands when we first thought they would split and finally we were like please split like it just just isn't sane but they did that waiting thing that people do And um, so they finally did split and my dad instantly, practically, you know, well, not instantly. He, he dated around a bit and then he married this woman that he stayed married to for the rest of his life. And my mom dated a little, and then that was enough for her. Then she was like, I'm done. I'm good. I'm out. And had a super good friend who's still her best friend. And that just became, I would say, other than a romantic relationship. I mean, that became her primary, you know, relationship. And she had some other close women friends, but that one woman who's her best friend, I mean, that has stayed steadfast. My mom's 84 now, and that's still like her closest friendship relationship. So yeah, they did finally split and that was a good thing. 
it's amazing how long people keep going, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think my mom really said the message was, you know, teacher or nurse. And when you get married, you stay married. That's it. And yes, maybe today we're a little too, maybe sometimes we don't stick it out, but there's something in the middle where there's getting out if it's really not working, but maybe staying with it if it's, you know, possible. So did you ever, did you ever have the opportunity to speak to your dad about what happened growing up? Um, when I called my dad after those seven years, I mean, a friend of mine had finally said to me, who had a difficult relationship with his dad, he had said to me, why don't you just tell your dad why you don't see him? And I think to this friend's great amazement, like two days later, I called my dad and said, I didn't say anything about molestation. I just said, I don't, I can't see you because I'm afraid of you. And my dad, not a pithy person, actually said something First, he denied it and was all blustery and said nothing like that happened and I would never hurt you girls, one of his lines. But then he said, which was amazing to me, I don't know what to do because you want to trust me in order to see me and I want you to see me in order to trust me. That was pretty smart. And so sometime after that, I went to see my mom and I just, because I visited my mom regularly and I decided that I would go with her. She was meeting my dad at a coffee shop and I would go, you can see my little motions are creeping in and I wouldn't tell my dad that I was coming. So then right. if I got there and I just felt like I've got to get out of here, I, I just wouldn't go in because at that point I couldn't tell whether the fear was because of my childhood or whether it should still reasonably be present. And I wanted to know. And so I went to the coffee shop Then I walked in and my dad saw me and he was amazed and he stood up and I looked into his eyes. It's really like so vulnerable to say this. Um, and I just felt like I saw myself in his eyes, like there's some way that we're so connected. Right. Mm. So I stayed there, you know, for whatever amount of time. He was so happy to see me. And then, you know, eventually we left and my mom and I, and I don't really remember how long after that, but I started, you know, I started to talk to him on the phone. But sometime after that, I went to see my dad and I went to stay with him. And I had not stayed with my dad since I was like, I had left home probably, maybe once. I don't even remember. I don't remember. I don't even think I remembered then. And I stayed with my dad and my stepmom for five days. And I, I kept thinking, okay, if I can't handle this, I'll just go stay at a hotel. I need to get out of here if I feel creeped out. But we had this like amazing visit. And it was actually pretty relaxing. And my dad did some things where I just had to leave the room, you know, a little bit of histrionics, not with me, but with his wife. But we talked and I made sure I asked to have one day just with him because I knew it would be different and where the boats are and the water is and we didn't go out on the water. But And we spent the day together and we just talked. There was no drama and there was no like stuff about the past. We just were together. And that was really healing. And then a number of years later, I was at an event at my aunt's house in California and my dad, my whole family was there. And I said something to him about what had happened I don't even remember. It was almost in passing and he acknowledged it. I knew it was to the degree that he could, like something about having made bad choices. And I just felt something in my body shift. And I just knew that that was enough. Like that was the, how the reconciliation could happen for me. And then after that, I saw him and I, you know, I didn't go constantly, but I visited him and we talked. And again, certain things happened that I did not want to discuss with him or because he would get dramatic. But for me, somehow that was possible. But I knew that I could connect to him again. And, um, and after that, I did visit him and see him some other times. You know, I talked to him on the phone and there were some things that I 
I avoided with him. I mean, there were certain topics I did not want to talk about because he would get dramatic and sort of histrionic, including something with one of my sisters. But I spent time with him. But then before, like at the end of my dad's life, he got ill with something that then when he, he was in his early 80s, but when he went to get checked for this thing he recovered from, they saw that he had stage four pancreatic cancer. And so he really knew that he was going to die. And in those couple months, I mean, we had a, lot, a number of conversations, a lot of conversations. And, you know, he was recognizing that that was the reality. And at the end of his life, he did die. He died two months later. But I went there and was there the night that he passed and, um, you know, was with him before he died. And my stepmom and my stepbrother came and, you know, and all of that was just, it was important. And I think it was a gift and, a, you know, a blessing to be able to be at that point with him and to share, you know, share life with him while he was still on the planet. So this is a funny thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. You know, I've, I've been going through a lot of stuff recently about forgiveness, being forgiven, not just forgiving others, being forgiven for things I've done and forgiving myself for certain things that I've done in my life and been kind of having a hard time and going through a lot about that. But I've realized that I think because of what happened with my dad, in some ways, I think that people can forgive more than it's sometimes possible for people to do. Or maybe they can forgive, but it doesn't mean they can keep hanging out. Yes. And, and that I've had to realize that, you know, everybody has their own way of which things they can reconcile, which things they can't and with whom and what is what that looks like in practice. Whether one forgives or not, doesn't mean you want to like be in a relationship actively with a person and yes. um but i think that because of what happened in my family there is some way that i've i don't know been able to hold a lot of space for forgiving but i'm also starting to understand that there's things that cross boundaries for people and that's that and so it's just been an interesting journey about what that really means forgiveness yeah i mean it's a bit of a non sequitur but it's part of this whole process i think absolutely and i'm i feel so I feel so happy that you got just that little bit of truth, that moment when your dad said that he'd made poor choices because you can live your whole life and nobody acknowledges what's happened. That person doesn't acknowledge it. It's not the truth to them. You know, they're, they're telling you that hasn't happened. And then when just that one moment, it's like, okay, it did happen. This, this was real and he knows it. And yeah. that's just so, that's just so powerful to have had that moment, isn't it? Yeah. And that was, you know, what he could do. It was like, almost like a nod of the head verbally, but it's like, okay, I saw it. You know, that's, that's enough for me in that relationship to stay connected, you know? Yeah. It's hard sometimes. I'm still amazed at the ways in which my life is still impacted. Yes. Kind of at a nervous system level, like how I still struggle in some ways, it's still surprising. And sometimes it's still, I still feel angry about that. But I also feel like, you know, again, I have a good life and I know it's grace that gives me this life. And, and, and that's just something I'm dealing with. I mean, everybody has their thing that they're kind of working with in this life. And I think that's one of the things, challenging things that I'm still working with. And the people who are in relationship with me, I mean, I know my friends hold a lot of space and my partner holds a lot of space for some ways that I do things that aren't that skillful, you know. Has it led to ill health? Have you had ill health from, from no. what you went through? No. So it didn't affect your health? My sister, one of my sisters who actually passed away quite young, I think it deeply, deeply affected her health. 
and maybe she was predisposed to fragility, but I think it affected her so much physically. But no, I mean, my health has been good, my physical health, and I'm super grateful for that. But I think choices that I've made, decades of developing self-trust, decades of developing trust in others and stability in relationships, believing that that's possible and things that I'm still extremely reactive to. And when I get in that mode, there's a certain way that I can get upset. That's, I would call it more in the normal range. And then if I get really, really triggered, it's there. I, I, it's really not pretty. And, um, and I think that I, it's trauma. I mean, it's like, it's trauma at work when I get that way. And uh, I think it's been very hard on my relationships, um, especially partnership. But I think even in some of my friendships, you know, or um, it's been hard because when I get like that, the other person doesn't know what's happening or if, even if they do, it, it crosses a boundary. And, um, and I just, so it's been a, it's been a challenging road that way, but I also feel so grateful for, you know, my long time deep friendships and people who can handle that, or there's people I feel safe around where it doesn't come up as much. Yes. But I think in partnership, it also comes up because there's a lot of safety. Like I can kind of, test sometimes I feel like I'm almost testing the waters yeah but I'm also really sensitized to things nuanced things that a lot of people don't get don't pay attention to and it's a gift and a frailty it's why yes. I can be so passionate in some situations but I feel like it's like the head of a pin sometimes for my partner like how can I be so upset by this particular thing that occurs why can't I let it wash over me or yes what what have you done over the years do you use meditation or do you have any sort of practices that have helped you through this? So many. Yeah. Um, lots of different kinds of just therapy, talk therapy. Um, in recent years, I've done trauma therapy like EMDR and other things that are meant to heal trauma specifically. I've done, I've been involved with different kinds of spiritual practices and I'm Jewish and my Jewish life has been, is incredibly important to me and I'm a big prayer but I've also done meditation and being physical and being in nature is super, super important for me. I don't think just because of the trauma, but it's a big, it's just a huge part of my well-being to spend time outdoors and also to move my body. When I was younger, I danced a lot and I walk a ton and I run and um, I'm, I love to move and work out. Like, I mean, workout sounds so contrived, but I mean, it's it's important to me to move and to be healthy and to eat well and, and to be in, like I'm in a Jewish women's group. I lead an artist group where we share deeply about our work, but also about the spiritual nature of being an artist. And I think places where there's spiritual, the spiritual combined with practical and where stuff can get witnessed and people are honest, even hard stuff can get spoken. That's just, or maybe especially, but not only, you know, there's a lot of joy in these groups that I'm in, but the realness, the unvarnished, it really, it's incredibly important to me. Being around animals is hugely important to me. So the cats that I live with are really a big deal for me. I'm like, I have a deep relationship with animals. It's become more and more realized as I've gotten older. And that's hugely important to my well-being also. And, and just taking care of their well-being. I mean, that really matters to me a lot. So yeah, I mean, I think friendship and quiet and praying and the privilege that I have to like eat well and take care of myself and move my body and live someplace beautiful. I mean, I think all of that has helped, but the yeah. therapy has been important. 
and it's not a panacea. Oh my God. But it's so, it's helpful. Yes. And what's your relationship with your mum like these days? Since my thirties, I always say that it just has kept getting better. She did a lot of psychological work. I have, as I just was describing, and we're just really, really close. And we talk a lot. I mean, now my mother's moving into the early stages of dementia. So I mean, she's changing. But over these decades, we just, we just talk about so many things. And my mother could still be a little cool, like part of that's her nature. But she's become much more affectionate and loving like with me and with her closest people. And I mean, in the big things in my life, she's just like a lioness, you know, she kind of totally asserts her motherness in a way that she couldn't when I was a kid. She's kind of amazed me over the years with certain things that have happened. She's funny and she's smart and we just love each other dearly and we both know that we're loved and that how much we love each other. So that's been really just miraculous and amazing to me. I love that she's found her lion voice. I love that. Yeah, she really has. And she's found kind of a sweetness. I mean, she doesn't always show it. Like even when my mother's been loving, I wouldn't really have described her as sweet. But um, as she's gotten older, like there's these ways that she shows her sweetness to me. I think we've really relied on each other. There's been a lot of difficult stuff in my family and a lot of estrangement. And we've just been steadfast and continue to get closer. And that's just, it's been huge for both of us, I think. So that's a beautiful end to that story. So what do you think are the most important things that we should be giving our kids? What do you think are the most important things? Um, I mean, love and affection and good boundaries. It sounds so obvious, but it just wasn't the way in my family. Um, but I think really giving credence to children's perception, not being patronizing, not denying what they perceive, not just about difficult things, but even about the world, like to really understand that the wisdom that they're bringing, even if it's something one already knows as an adult, but it's fresh for that child. So like to really respect and honor that wisdom, not to diminish it or minimize it as cute. It's like it's coming from a deep place, but also about the hard stuff that when kids perceive things, even if it's scary for the parents. I think those things need to be acknowledged and appropriately or get support for what's being brought forth. And some of the things I want to say are so basic. I don't even think I should say them out loud, but. No, I think you should. Well, you know, please don't molest your children. And um, please don't talk to your children about your marital relationship as if they're therapists. And, um, you know, please try to tend your own stuff. Nobody's perfect, but as adults, we are responsible for how we deal with our emotional lives. And of course, some of that vulnerability will get exposed to children. But, but you know, to the degree possible, you know, take ownership of what is ours and don't impose that on them. And again, it doesn't mean we won't show our fragility because that's real too. Kids need to know their parents are real. But that can quickly segue into either the parent thinks they have to be perfect and there's a denial of any chinks in the armor and like we don't need to be armored as adults you know but also the other side of that is like blurring into our children's lives and it's like no it's not theirs to take on what happened with us and it's not theirs to have us impose our neuroses on them to the degree that that's manageable yes um but i think honesty truth telling a certain kind of simplicity listening to the nuances too though talking about ideas being creative 
exposing them to books and ideas and being out in the world. And, oh, here's a big one. Like trusting themselves physically, like feeling safe in their bodies. So big. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. So. All amazingly good things. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor to hear your story today. Yeah, what you've shared is, it's beautiful and amazing and heartbreaking and all kinds of difficult that some people will never know. And, but I know that there's a lot of people out there that also have had a similar experience and story. So I think it's, it's so important for people to hear that they're not alone and how we can just do better in the world. Yeah, I think that is really important. I mean, everything you're saying but I do think in this moment when you asked about how I felt as a child, like there isn't really a reason for kids to feel so alone and that it's impossible to bring up what's occurring. And I wish that adults that saw the ways I was compensating, like a girl getting straight A's, fretting about every test, that someone would have said, wow, what's actually happening for you? Because something's yes. happening here. So I, I would hope that adults, that we could be a little less private and a little more communal where we would investigate these things that put up our antenna when we're around yes. younger people. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you too. I was honoured that shared her story with me today. There were so many things in this story that were heartbreaking, but I, I suppose the thing that really hits me again is how lonely, how desperately alone we can feel in our own homes as kids and teens. It's like if we don't have anybody to turn to, if things are happening to us and we're so confused and we don't understand what's going on and there's nobody to talk to, there's absolutely nobody to talk to, what happens to us? And it doesn't surprise me sometimes when I hear the statistics for suicide because kids kids are desperately lonely. And if they don't have somebody in their own family that they can confide in without judgment, and I think that's the issue is that parents are so busy judging their kids and trying to tell them what they think they should be thinking and feeling instead of just letting them think and feel authentically coming from a place of who they are because as parents that's our job it's our job to support 100% to support to be there to be that person to give the unconditional love, the love with no conditions, not I love you because, it's just I always love you. And imagine yourself as a person with nobody to turn to. That's the heartbreak of this. Here are the takeaways. Number one, creativity should be a big part of learning. Encourage your kids to be creative. Number two, having one person on your side as a child is huge, just one. Number three, when families are dysfunctional, it becomes a fight for survival. See where your kids are at in your family situation. Number four, words can be confusing to kids. Explain and communicate what they need to understand. Number five, kids and especially teens can feel incredibly lonely in their own homes. Connect with your kids and make home a place that is safe. Number six, whatever you share with your kids, make sure it's appropriate. Number seven, allow kids to always stay safe in their bodies. Don't cross boundaries. 
Number eight, if you make a mistake, be honest and admit it to your kids. And number nine, if you know of kids that are not coping in a home, reach out. They will never forget that you connected. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at My Big Love Project. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.